Imagine for a moment being in the middle of the assembly. But instead of listening to the beginning of the sermon, you're about to be led in prayer. And the fellow who's leading walks haltingly up to the lectern. His hair is disheveled, his shoulders are slumped. His face is blotched and mottled. His eyes are puffy and red, his cheeks are damp. And he grabs hold of the lectern as if it's the only thing that's keeping him up. And he says, God, you are my Savior. So I'm praying to you now like I've been praying to you night and day. Please listen to me. I'm really struggling. I can't take it anymore. I feel like I might as well die because you aren't taking any notice of me anymore. You have made my life like darkness. You must be angry with me because you are lashing out at me like the repeated lashing of ocean waves. My friends don't like me anymore and it's your fault. I've cried so much over this I can hardly see. I've been praying to you for years and you haven't done anything. Am I going to die? Will you do anything for me then? Will I be any good to you then? Every morning I've been praying to you and get nothing. Why have you thrown me away? I'm absolutely powerless and helpless. I've been like this since I was young because of your terrors. Your attacks have destroyed me. They're always against me. They're closing in on me. And you have taken away my friends. Without even closing the prayer, the brother staggers off and finds a seat. What would you think of that? How do you feel about such a prayer? How do you feel about such a man? Would you start trying to edge your way away from him, fearing that lightning would fall out of the sky? Would you expect somebody to run up to the lectern and lead a proper prayer? Or maybe one of the elders should get up following him and apologize to the congregation and to the guests. What if I were to tell you that that's actually a prayer that's recorded in Scripture? In fact, more than that, that is a prayer that is inspired as Scripture. Look at Psalm 88. King the Ezraite prayed this prayer, Psalm 88. O Lord God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before You. Let my prayer come before You. Incline Your ear to my cry. For my soul is full of troubles, and my life draws near to Sheol. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength, like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your ways. You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. 
I am shut in so that I cannot escape. My eye grows dim through sorrow. Every day I call upon you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are your wonders known in the darkness or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? But I, O Lord, cry to you. In the morning my prayer comes before you. O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death from my youth up, I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. We've been taking some time to take a look at the Psalms as a guide to us about prayer. And we've learned lots of things. We've learned about how the psalmists view God and how they view prayer and how they view themselves. And I preach these lessons in what I consider foundational importance. That, that is, I think that before we can pray, we've got to believe in God as they did. But the lesson I want to share with you today is the greatest lesson that I've learned about prayer from the Psalms. And that is, is that we need to be honest in prayer. Candid. And by honest, I don't simply mean making sure that everything that we say is true. I mean being open and transparent. Real. Taking to God who we really are and what we really feel and what's really going on in our lives at that moment and bringing those things to Him in prayer. I'd like to share with you what some authors have had to say about the Psalms. J. Ellsworth Collis says, I have chosen the words candor and candid quite deliberately. I might have used the word honest, but I have a specific image in mind. The book of Psalms is full of candid pictures. It seems never to give us a posed shot. Instead, the Psalms show us the writer just as he or she felt at a particular moment. This is one of the loveliest gifts of the book of Psalms. The Bible has preserved for us pictures of the saints in some of their least saintly moments. If I had written some of the Psalms, I would have left behind a request. Please destroy this after I'm gone. But the Scriptures have saved these pictures. We are privileged to see the spiritual giants who wrote the Psalms, not in portraits of their spiritual finery, but in the rags of their candid struggles. From his book, Longing to Pray, How the Psalms Teach Us to Talk to God. Walter Brueggemann, in his book, Praying the Psalms, and this is a rather lengthy quote, but I want to read it all to you. I know that it's going to be difficult to internalize all of this, but there will be outlines and copies of this on the table on your way out. But he says, Note that the Psalms thus propose to speak about human experience in an honest, freeing way. This is in contrast to much human speech and conduct, which is in fact a cover-up. In most arenas where people live, we are expected and required to speak the language of safe orientation and equilibrium. 
either to find it so or to pretend we find it so. For the normal, conventional functioning of public life, the raw edges of disorientation and reorientation must be denied or suppressed for purposes of public equilibrium. As a result, our speech is dulled and mundane. Our passion has been stilled and is without imagination. And mostly the Holy One is not addressed, not because we dare not, but because God is far away and hardly seems important. This means that the agenda and intention of the Psalms is considerably at odds with the normal speech of most people. The normal speech of a stable, functioning, self-deceptive culture in which everything must be kept running young and smooth. Against that, the speech of the Psalms is abrasive, revolutionary, and dangerous. It announces that life is not like that. That our common experience is not one of well-being and equilibrium, but a churning, disruptive experience of dislocation and relocation. Perhaps in our conventional, routinized prayer life, the daily practice of the office, that is one of the reasons the Psalter does not yield its power. Because out of a habit or fatigue or numbness, we try to use the Psalms in our equilibrium. And when we do that, we miss the point of the Psalms Moreover, our own experience may be left untapped and inarticulate and therefore not liberated. Such surface use of the Psalms coincides with the denial of the discontinuities in our own experience. Ernest Becker has written of the denial of death. But such denial happens not just at the crisis point. It happens daily in the reduction of language to numb conventions. Thus I suggest that most of the Psalms can only be appropriately prayed by people who are living at the edge of their lives, sensitive to raw hurts, the primitive passions, and the naive elations that are at the bottom of our life. For most of us, liturgical or devotional entry to the Psalms requires a real change of pace. It asks us to depart from our closely managed world of public survival, to move into the open, frightening healing world of speech with the Holy One. If we want to pray like the psalmist, we have to learn to be honest. We have to learn to be candid. We have to learn to be transparent. We have to learn to be real. We can't deceive God. We can't really hide from Him what we really think and feel on the inside. So why would we try that in our prayers? We need to learn to go to God where we really are. And let Him deal with it. There's five things about this that I've learned from the Psalms. About our relationship with God and about praying to Him. And that is what I would like to share with you today as we look at honesty and candor. The very first thing, we are allowed to feel. We are allowed to feel the entire gambit of emotions that God has created us to feel. From my reading and study, I've learned that there's essentially eight core emotions. There's all kinds of words that we can use to talk about how we're feeling, but if, if you boil it down, they generally come down to about eight things. There's gladness, sadness, 
fear, loneliness, hurt, anger, guilt, and shame. So that any kind of feeling word that you can come up with will come down to one of those. And if you're like me, you've developed this idea that really the only legitimate feeling that we as Christians are allowed to have is gladness. After all, didn't James 1 tell us that we're supposed to count it all joy when we suffer various trials? And didn't Romans chapter 5 and verse 3 tell us that we rejoice even when we're suffering? And of course, hasn't Philippians chapter 4 and verse 6 said that we're not allowed to be anxious, but instead we're supposed to pray with thanksgiving. Certainly, we sometimes recognize a little bit of an exception for sadness because we know that Romans chapter 12 and verse 15 not only says that we are to rejoice with those who rejoice, but we are also allowed to weep with those who weep. But if you're like me, the message that you've heard over and over again and have this kind of subconscious and maybe even conscious feeling that I'm just not allowed to feel anger or sadness or loneliness or hurt. Those aren't legitimate good feelings. Those are ungodly, unscriptural feelings. And I need to get rid of those and squelch those and cover those up. And I certainly don't want anybody else here to know. I don't want God to know, and I don't want to bring that to God. And and obviously, well, of course, we're going to feel guilt and shame, but in order to get those feelings, I've got to sin, and that means they must not be good. You know that quote and how even in our society, don't we normally like the numbed-down conventional language of equilibrium? Jimmy, somebody comes up to you and says, how are you doing today? What do you normally say? Doing good. Doing good. Are you always doing good? You're always doing good? No, okay. I was going to say, wow, let's learn something from Jimmy. Oh, yeah, how are you doing today? Oh, I'm doing fine. Doing good. I've even heard some Christians brag, oh, when somebody asks me how I'm doing, I always say, I'm great. Because Jesus died for me, and how can I not be great all the time? Couldn't be better. Or if you're really spiritual, you know what you say? Oh, I'm just blessed. You ever walked up to somebody and said, how are you doing today? And they said, well, i got to tell you, I'm actually feeling really sad because my wife said something to me this morning that just really hurt. And so right now I feel a little bit lonely, like there's not really anybody out there that I can confide in and connect with. But I have to admit, I also feel a little bit guilty because I know that the reason that she said that was because she was just reacting to something I said to her out of anger because she was running late. I'm not trying to say I've ever felt that way on a Sunday morning. No, I'm always great. Well, if somebody starts getting into that, and it's like, oh, hold on, too much information. You know, I just wanted things to be fine so I could move on to the next person. Listen, we live in a culture that says we're supposed to cover up all this stuff. We're not supposed to share this. We're not supposed to share it with each other. We're definitely not supposed to share it with God. But look at Psalm 88 again. If there's anything in this psalm, there's feelings. There's emotions. There's, I'm not going to cover up how I feel, God. I'm not going to cover up about how I feel about everybody else. I'm not going to cover up how I feel about you. There's feelings. You are allowed 
to feel what you feel. And don't let anyone tell you that it's invalid or ungodly or unscriptural to feel what you're feeling. But the second thing I learned is that we are allowed to take that to God. We can be candid with God about our feelings. I want you to think about those eight emotions that we talked about. You can find every single one of them in the Psalms. And for quickness sake, we're just going to read them off the screen here. Psalm 16, verses 9 through 11 shows us gladness. Therefore, my heart will be glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Listen, sometimes we feel joy. A lot of times we feel joy. We are Christians. It is great. There are pleasures in God's presence. And we feel that and we're allowed to share that. We are blessed. We are joyful. But there's some other things here. There's sadness. In Psalm 38, verses 5-10, through 10, My wounds stink and fester because of my foolishness. I am utterly bowed down and prostrate all the day I go about mourning. For my sides are filled with burning and there's no soundness in my flesh. I am feeble and crushed. I groan because of the tumult of my heart. O oh Lord, all my longing is before You. My sighing is not hidden from You. My heart throbs. My strength fails me. And the light of my eyes, it is also gone from me. Do you see the sadness there? Hurt. In Psalm 35, verse 11 through 14, we see somebody who feels hurt. He says, malicious witnesses rise up. They ask me of things that I do not know. They repay me evil for good. My soul is bereft. But I, when they were sick, I wore sackcloth. I afflicted myself with fasting. As one who laments his mother, I bowed down in mourning. Here's a person that feels like he's been hurt. Somebody's hurt me. I went out on a limb for them. I was there for them. I, I, was, I mourned for them. But what did they do to me? They repaid me with affliction. I've been hurt and I feel that. Loneliness. There in Psalm 88, verses 14 and 18, what did he say? Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? You've caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. He feels loneliness in his relationship with God. He feels loneliness based on his relationship with others. He feels alone. You ever feel alone? Take that to God. Anger in Psalm 137, verses 7 through 9. Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem, how they said, lay it bare, lay it bare, down to its foundations. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed. Blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. you hear any anger in that? I want you to remember this is a psalm offered up to God. Notice what they didn't do is they didn't take this anger to these folks and dash their little ones' heads against the rock. They took their anger to God in this psalm and let Him be the God of judgment and vengeance. What can we do if we're angry? We can take it to God got fear. In Psalm 55, verses 4 through 5, My heart is in anguish within me. The terrors of death have fallen upon me. Fear and trembling come upon me, and horror overwhelms me. Oh, if you're a Christian, you won't ever have fear. Anybody ever felt that way? That, that folks are telling, oh, Christians never ever have fear. Those who serve God, they shouldn't have fear, because God's on our side, and yet here's somebody with fear. What did he do with it, though? He took it to God. He was honest with God. I'm afraid. I've got fears. Guilt. Psalm 32, verses 3 through 5. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. 
For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. And then shame. And shame, the difference between guilt and shame, as I understand it, is guilt is where you say, I've done something wrong, and shame is where you say, I am something wrong. I've done something bad versus I am something bad. And here in Psalm 51, 3 through 5, listen to David's shame. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. In sin did my mother conceive me. That is so bad. That's just the way I was born. That's not a doctrinal statement of total depravity. That's a statement of shame. What did David do with it? He took it to God. We are allowed to bring our feelings to God. Not only are we allowed, we must. If we're going to work through our feelings, Philippians chapter 4 and verse 6, be anxious for nothing but in everything, make your request known to God in thanksgiving, is not saying what I always thought, get your emotions under control and then come to God. It's not saying get rid of your anxiety and then go to God in prayer. What it's saying is get rid of your anxiety by going to God in prayer. These emotions and these feelings that you have, take them to God. And yet how often do we do that? I'm pretty sure that I'm not the only Christian that feels that gladness was the only thing that we're really supposed to take to God and the only thing that we're really supposed to feel. Because I take a look at our songs. Look in your songbook. How many, how many of these songs that we have in our books are laments? So the psalms are full of them. The psalms are full of laments. Things aren't going my way. Where are you, God? What are you doing to me, God? Why haven't you done something, God? It's over and over again. How many of our songs say that stuff? Oh, we're Christians. We're better than all that. Really? You know, the only song that I consider even has a close resemblance to lament is Farther Along. Farther Along, we'll know all about it. Uh, And yet we spend most of our time questioning whether that song is even scriptural. I've gone through our songbooks, and I found this one in the supplemental. I think I found 42 songs that refer to or based on or mention psalms. Only one of them comes from a lament as the deer, from Psalm 42. But that probably shocks you. Because when we sing as the deer, it's not presented as a lament. When we sing it, it's presented as, oh God, we just love you so much. Read Psalm 42 again. What Psalm 42 is saying, God, I pant for you as the deer pants for the waters, because I don't know where you are. Where have you been? I am longing for you. We don't sing it as a lament, though, do you? I I tell you what I, I fear. I fear that most of us have used what we do in prayer and what we do when we come together as a church as medication. We sometimes, and we don't always feel bad. Listen, I don't want to make this seem like we just always feel bad. We do feel good. God has done great things for us. We have great feelings sometimes. But sometimes we feel bad and we come to church as a drug to overcome it. And I've even heard folks say, oh, I just felt terrible. But boy, now that I've been here, I feel wonderful. The sad thing is, a whole bunch of folks say that, and then they go home and they just go right back to feeling terrible again because the drug wears off. 
I think that's why there's a whole lot of churches that keep looking for newer and greater highs and, and different kinds of experience because what they're not doing is really bringing who they are to God. They're just trying to find something to cover it up. And just make me feel better. That's not how it works. If we really want to get better, we've got to bring it to God. But now, here's the thing that we also need to remember. As we're honest and candid with God, we've got to hang on to our faith. I think one of the problems we have with this idea of honesty, not, not honesty in our praise and our joy, it's easy to be honest when that's going on, but honest when we're hurting, when we're lonely, when we're angry, especially if we're hurting lonely and angry and afraid of God, especially when that's happening. I think one of the reasons why we would kind of tend to shy away from this is we're afraid that it demonstrates a lack of faith. But what amazes me about the psalmists is how often they prayed like this because of their faith. Look in Psalm 10. In Psalm 10 and verse 1, Psalm 10 and verse 1, it begins, Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? It starts with this loneliness. But look in verse 14. See the faith that it turns into. But you do see. For you note mischief and vexation, that you may take it into your hands. To you the helpless commits himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. Look in Psalm 13. Psalm 13 begins, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? But it ends in verse 5, But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because He has dealt bountifully with me. It begins with this loneliness and this fear and this angst, but it ends in faith that God really has taken care of us. Psalm 22 begins, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you don't answer. And by night, but I find no rest. But in verse 22 it ends, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I'll praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise Him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify Him and stand in awe of Him. All you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he's not hidden his face from him. He has heard when he cried to him, From you comes my praise in the congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. It begins with abandonment and anger, but it ends in faith and praise. Hang on to the faith. In fact, even in Psalm 88, though that psalmist, though Heman couldn't come around to praise, his emotions were so raw, his hurt and his loneliness, he didn't come around to praise in the psalm. But notice the anchor in verse 1. O Lord, God of my salvation. Why was Heman able to pray this prayer? Not because he doubted, but because he believed. He knew that God was the God of His salvation and He knew He could bring this to God. To be honest with Him. And so that's exactly what He did. We can be honest with God. And what I see in the Psalms is that honesty with God doesn't take us away from Him. It draws us closer to Him. Haven't you noticed that in most relationships? What not it dishonesty that divides us? Not honesty. Honesty with God 
will draw us closer. God is big enough to handle our emotions. Now, sometimes in my relationship with you, I may be afraid to come to you and let you know how you've made me feel. I may be afraid to let you know that you've hurt me or you've angered me or you made me sad or I feel lonely or I feel disconnected. Because I'm afraid that you'll get defensive and lash out at me. And so I start feeling like I need to manage your emotions and your reactions. And, and so I figure I, I, I'm not going to say this because I don't want to upset you and this, that, and the other. And you know, One of the things we need to learn with people is it's not our job to manage everybody else's emotions and reactions to what we do, but it's definitely not our job with God. God is big enough to handle what we can bring to Him. Even if what we bring to Him is about Him. Brothers and sisters, Psalm 88 was not the psalmist's anger and hurt about his enemies. In Psalm 88, the psalmist is going to God and saying, you've done this. I'm uncomfortable even reading Psalm 88 let alone really, really adopting it as a style of prayer. But brothers and sisters, this psalm is not here as, a, as an example of don't do this. This is a psalm in a book of psalms that was offered as guidance for prayer. And you know what Psalm 88 says to me? God can handle whatever I bring him. I don't have to try to manage his emotions and his reactions. And we can sit here and argue all day long, is it right to be mad at God? I don't know if it's right to be mad at God. All I know is at times I have been mad at God. And the question here is not, is it right or wrong to be mad at God? The question is, whether it's right or wrong when it happens, what do I do with it? And what Psalm 88 says is, I can take it to God and I can let him know I am mad. And what I can't help but remember is that from before time began, God knew every sin I would commit. He knew every thought I would have. He knew every emotion that I would feel. And He sent Jesus to die for me anyway. He knew every outburst that I would bring against Him. He knew every moment of anger I might have. He knew every moment of doubt I might feel. In Romans 5, And verse 6 says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows His love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God knew you'd feel mad at Him. He knew that sometimes you'd feel hurt from Him, and sometimes you'd feel lonely in your relationship with Him. He knew all that, and He knew when you'd bring it to Him, and He knew what you say about it, and He he knew what you would do with it, and, and His reaction was to send Jesus to die for you. Can we just be amazed at that for a moment? As long as we're hanging on to our faith, we can bring this to God. 
And that's how we'll work through it. The final amazing thing that I learned from the Psalms is that as we make honesty a habit, God will lead us to greater and greater joy. And I learned this by just looking at the Psalms as a whole and how they're laid out. You know, it's very interesting. If you start trying to study the Psalms, you'll get into commentaries and books, and almost every single one of them will start trying to tell well, here's what the organization is. So they'll talk to you about the five different books that you can find in the Psalms, and, and they'll try to lay out how many are laments, and how many are praises, and how many of them are this, that, and the other, and, and what the order is, and how they're lumped together. And there's no doubt that there are some Psalms that clearly go together as they're, as they're lumped in there. But, but most of the time, what you'll finally find out is they have to admit we just really don't know what the order and organization of the Psalms is. You know, interestingly, if you pull out your songbook, you can look at, at the front of the songbook here, and our songbook, does, it has the contents, and it'll say, all right, numbers 0 through 58 are praise songs, numbers 59 through 96 are prayer songs, number 97 through 150 are devotion. We see that here are themes, and, and the guys who put this psalm book together, they, they lumped them together in themes, and folks are looking for that in the psalms, and we just can't find it. You know why? Because our lives are not organized by themes. And there might be a moment where we're soaring on the clouds with joy and praise and we get a phone call and come crashing down in sorrow and hurt and sadness and loneliness and anger. And there are psalms that are for that. And there may be days when we feel like we're making our bed in Sheol and something happens and it lifts us back up as if we're in heaven. And there are psalms for that. Trimper Longman, in his book, How to Read the Psalms, he says, we are not surprised then that the Psalter does not present, does not present a systematic picture of God and His relationship to the world. The Psalms give us a theology written in intimate relationship with God and in close touch with life. Why isn't there an organization in the Psalms? Because, brothers and sisters, our lives are just not organized. We don't have a period of sadness and then a period of prayer and then a period of praise. And so we can lump all that together and march through it through our lives. It's, it's a roller coaster up and down, and that's what the Psalms present to us. But I want you to listen to what Longman says. In another place, he says, a decided shift takes place as we move from the beginning of the book to its end. As we move toward the end, praise overtakes lament until at the very end of the book we have a virtual fireworks of praise. The last seven psalms are not only all hymns of praise, but they, for the most part, concentrate on calling the whole world to praise God. In a real sense, the book of Psalms moves us from mourning to joy. As it says in Psalm 126, those who sow in tear, tears will reap with songs of joy. Look at the ending of the book of Psalms. Start in Psalm 144. Psalm 144. Just notice how they begin. Blessed be the Lord my rock who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle. He is my steadfast love and my fortress, my stronghold and my deliverer, my shield and He in whom I take refuge, who subdues people under me. Psalm 45, I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and His greatness is unsearchable. Psalm 146, 
praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. I'll praise the Lord as long as I live. I'll sing praises to my God while I have my being. Psalm 147. Praise the Lord, for it is good to sing praises to our God, for it is pleasant. And a song of praise is fitting. Psalm 148. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise Him all in the heights. Praise Him all His angels. Praise Him all His hosts. Praise Him, sun and moon. Praise Him, all you shining stars. Praise Him, you highest heavens and you waters above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for He commanded and they were created. Psalm 149. Praise the Lord. Sing to the Lord a new song. His praise in the assembly of the, go- of the godly. Let Israel be glad in His Maker. Let the children of Zion rejoice in their King. Psalm 150. Praise the Lord. Praise God in His sanctuary. Praise Him in His mighty heavens. Praise Him for His mighty deeds. Praise Him according to His excellent greatness. Mourning, sadness, loneliness, anger, hurt, and fear is all in the Psalms. But as we move through the Psalms, it brings us to this virtual firework of praise. And that's what God will do in our lives. If we're honest, if we're real, if we bring to Him who we are and what we're feeling and what's going on and we share it with Him, we can't hide it from Him. You know, the fact is, if, if... if I'm mad at Jim, I might can hide that from him by the way I talk to him. But guys, if I'm mad at God, I can't hide it from him. And if I'm mad at Jim, I can't hide it from God. I, I can meet with you guys and, and I may be lonely and disconnected and all kinds of problems on the inside, but as far as you know, I'm wonderful. But I can't hide that from God. Why not just take it to him? God already knew all of that anyway. Why not just be real with Him? And as we do that and make that our habit, God carries us to a life of peace and joy and a virtual fireworks of praise. We may not be there today. I'm not there today. You're probably not there today. There may be some folks that are there now. But that's where God's taking us if we're honest with Him. 